Chapter Eleven of Triplanetary. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Triplanetary, by E. E. Smith, Chapter Eleven. Roger carries on. For Grey Roger had not perished in the floods of Nevian energy which had destroyed his planetoid while those terrific streamers of force emanating from the crimson obscurity surrounding the amphibian spaceship were driving into his defensive screens, Roger sat impassive and immobile at his desk. His hard gray eyes moved methodically over his instruments and recorders, and after a few minutes he smiled coldly, while an expression of relief struggled fleetingly to move his expressionless face. Even though his screens were better than any one had supposed, why admit it? Baxter, Hartkoff, Chatelier, Andrasung, Penrose, Nishimura, Mirsky. He called off a list of names. Report to me here at once. The planetoid is lost, he informed his select group of scientists when they had assembled, and we must abandon it in exactly fifteen minutes, which will be the time required for the robots to fill this first section with our most necessary machinery and instruments. Pack each of you one box of the things he most wishes to take with him, and report back here in not more than thirteen minutes. Say nothing to anyone else. They filed out calmly, and as they passed out into the hall, Baxter, perhaps a trifle less case-hardened than his fellows, at least voiced the thought for those they were so brutally deserting. I say, it seems a bit thick to dash off this way and leave the rest of them, but still I suppose— You'll suppose correctly. Bland and heartless Nishimura filled in the pause. A small part of the planetoid may be able to escape, which, to me at least, is pleasantly surprising news. It cannot carry all of our men and mechanisms. Therefore, only the most important of both are saved. What would you— for the rest, it is simply what you call the fortune of war, no? But the beautiful, began the amorous Chatelier. Hush, fool! snorted Hartkoff. One word of that to the ear of Roger, and you too are left behind. Of such non-essentials the universe is full, to be collected in times of ease, but in times hard, to be disregarded. Und this is a time of schrecklichkeit, indeed. The group broke up each man going to his own quarters, to meet again in the first section a few minutes before the zero time. Roger's office was now packed so tightly with machinery and supplies that but little room was left for the scientists. The grey monstrosity still sat unmoved behind his dials. "'But of what use is it, Roger?' the Russian physicist demanded. "'Those waves are of some ultra-band of a frequency immensely higher than anything heretofore known. Our screens should not have stopped them for an instant. It is a mystery that they have held so long, and certainly this single section will not be permitted to leave the planetoid without being destroyed. "'There are many things you do not know, Mirsky,' came the cold and level answer. "'Our screens, which you think are of your own devising, have several—' improvements of my own in the formulae, and would hold forever had I the power to drive them. The screens of this section, being smaller, can be held as long as will be found necessary. "'Power!' the dumbfounded Russian exclaimed. 
why we have almost infinite power, unlimited, sufficient for a lifetime of high expenditure. But Roger made no reply, for the time of departure was at hand. He pressed down a tiny lever, and a robot in the power room threw in the gigantic plunger switches which launched against the Nevians the stupendous beam which so upset the complacence of Narado the amphibian, the beam into which was poured recklessly every resource of power afforded by the planetoid, careless alike of burnout and of exhaustion. Then all the attention of the Nevians and the greater part of their power output devoted to the neutralization of that last desperate thrust. The metal wall of the planetoid opened, and the first section shot out into space. Full driven as they were, Roger's screens flared white as he drove through the temporarily lessened attack of the Nevians, but in their preoccupation the amphibians did not notice the additional disturbance, and the section tore on, unobserved and undetected. Far out in space, Roger raised his eyes from the instrument paddle, and continued the conversation as though it had not been interrupted. "'Everything is relative, Mirsky, and you have misused gravely the term unlimited. Our power was, and is, very definitely limited. True, it then seemed ample for our needs, and is far superior to that possessed by the inhabitants of any solar system with which I am familiar.' But the beings behind that red screen, whoever they are, have sources of power as far above ours as ours are above those of the Salarians. How do you know? That power, what is it? We have the analyses of those fields recorded, came simultaneous questions and explanations. Their power source is very probably the interatomic energy of iron and if so, much remains to be done before I can proceed with my plan. I must have the most powerful structure in the known universe before I can act. In the light of what I have just learned, the loss of the planetoid is but a trifle. Roger, as unmoved as one of his own automatons, was coldly analyzing the situation, thinking the thing through to its logical conclusion, paying no attention whatever to the losses of life, time, and treasure now behind him. "'But what can you do about it?' growled the Russian. "'Many things. From the charts of the recorders we can compute their fields of force, and from that point it is only a step to their method of liberating the energy. We shall build robots. They shall build other robots, who shall in turn construct another planetoid, one this time that, wielding the theoretical maximum of power, will be suited to my needs.' And where will you build it? We are marked. Invisibility now is useless. Triplanetary will find us, even if we take up an orbit beyond that of Pluto. We have already left your Solarian system far behind. We are going to another system, one far enough removed so that the spy rays of Triplanetary will never find us, and yet one that we can reach in a reasonable length of time with the energies at our command. Some fifteen days will be required for the journey, however, and our quarters are cramped. Therefore make places for yourselves wherever you can, and lessen the tedium of those fifteen days by working upon whatever problems are most pressing in your respective researches. The grey monster fell silent, immersed in what thoughts no one knew, and the scientists set out to obey his orders. 
Baxter, the British chemist, followed Penrose, the lantern-jawed Saturnine American engineer and inventor, as he made his way to the furthermost cubicle of the section. "'I say, Penrose, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions, if you don't mind.' "'Go ahead. Ordinarily it's dangerous to be a cackling hen anywhere around him. But he can't hear anything here now. His system is pretty well shot to pieces. You want to know all I know about Roger?' "'Exactly so. You have been with him so much longer than I have, you know. In some ways, he impresses one as being scarcely human, if you know what I mean. Ridiculous, of course, but of late I have been wondering whether he really is human. He knows too much, about too many things. He seems to be acquainted with many solar systems, to visit which would require lifetimes.' Then, too, he has dropped remarks which would imply that he actually saw things that happened long before any living man could possibly have been born. Finally, he looks, well, peculiar, and certainly does not act human. I have been wondering, and have been able to learn nothing about him. As you have said, such talk as this aboard the planetoid was impossible." "'You needn't worry about being paid your price. That's one thing. If we live—and that was part of the agreement, you know—we will all get what we sold out for. You will become a belted earl. I have already made millions, and shall make many more. Similarly, Chatelier has had and will have his women. And Andrasung and Nishimura their cherished revenges. Hartkopf is power, and so on. He eyed the other speculatively, then went on. "'I might as well spill it all, since I'll never have a better chance, and since you should know what the rest of us do. You're in the same boat with us, and tarred with the same brush. There's a lot of gossip that may or may not be true, but I know one very startling fact. Here it is. My great-great-grandfather left some notes which— taken in connection with certain things I myself saw on the planetoid, proof beyond question that our Roger went to Harvard University at the same time he did. Roger was a grown man then, and the elder Penrose noted that he was marked like this. And the American sketched a cabalistic design. "'What!' Baxter exclaimed. "'An adept of North Polar Jupiter? Them?' Yes, that was before the First Jovian War, you know, and it was those medicine men, really high-caliber scientists, that prolonged that war so. But I say, Penrose, that's really a bit thick. When they were wiped out, it was proved a lot of hocus-pocus. Some of it was, but most of it wasn't, Penrose interrupted in turn. I'm not asking you to believe anything except that one fact— I'm just telling you the rest of it. But it is also a fact that those adepts knew things and did things that take a lot of explaining. Now for the gossip, none of which is guaranteed. Roger is undoubtedly of Tellurian parentage, and the story is that his father was a moon pirate, his mother a Greek adventuress. When the pirates were chased off the moon they went to Ganymede, you know, and some of them were captured by the Jovians. It seems that Roger was born at an instant of time sacred to the adepts, so they took him on. 
he worked his way up through the forbidden society as all adepts did, by various kinds of murder and job-lots of assorted deviltries, until he got clear to the top, the seventy-seventh mystery. "'The secret of eternal youth!' gasped Baxter, awed in spite of himself. "'Right, and he stayed chief devil, in spite of all the efforts of all his ambitious sub-devils to kill him, until the turning point of the First Jovian War. He cut away then in a spaceship, and ever since then he has been working, and working hard, on some stupendous plan of his own that nobody else has ever got even an inkling of. That's a story. True or not, it explains a lot of things that no other theory can touch. And now I think you'd better shuffle along. Enough of this is a great plenty. Baxter went to his own cubby, and each man of the adept's cold-blooded crew methodically took up his task. True to prediction, in fifteen days a planet loomed beneath them, and their vessel settled through a reeking atmosphere toward a rocky and forbidding plain. Then for another day they plunged along, a few thousand feet above the surface of that strange world, while Roger with his analytical detectors sought the most favorable location from which to wrest the materials necessary for his program of construction. It was a world of cold— its sun was distant, pale and wan. It had monstrous forms of vegetation, of which each branch and member writhed and fought with a grotesque and horrible individual activity. Ever and anon a struggling part broke from its parent plant and darted away in independent existence, leaping upon and consuming or being consumed by a fellow-creature equally monstrous. This flora was of a uniform color a lurid, sickly yellow. In form, some of it was fern-like, some cactus-like, some vaguely tree-like, but it was all outrageous, inherently repulsive to all Solarian senses. And no less hideous were the animal-like forms of life, which slithered and slunk rapaciously through that fantastic pseudo-vegetation. Snake-like, reptile-like, bat-like, the creatures squirmed, crawled, and flew, each covered with a dankly oozing yellow hide, and each motivated by twin common impulses, to kill, and insatiably and indiscriminately to devour. Over this reeking wilderness Roger drove his vessel, untouched by its disgusting, its appalling ferocity and horror. "'There should be intelligence of a kind,' he mused, and swept the surface of the planet with an exploring beam. Ah, yes, there is a city, of sorts. And in a few minutes the outlaws were looking down upon a metal-walled city of roundly conical buildings. Inside these structures, and between and around them, there scuttled formless blobs of matter, one of which Roger brought up into his vessel by means of a tractor-ray. Held immovable by the beam, it lay upon the floor, a strangely extensile, amoeba-like, metal-studded mass of leathery substance. Of eyes, ears, limbs, or organs, it apparently had none. Yet it radiated an intensely hostile aura, a mental effluvium concentrated of rage and of hatred. "'Apparently the ruling intelligence of the planet,' Roger commented. "'Such creatures are useless to us. We can build robots in half the time required for their subjugation and training. 
Still, it should not be permitted to carry back what it may have learned of us. As he spoke, the adept threw the peculiar being out into the air, and dispassionately rayed it out of existence. "'That thing reminds me of a man I used to know, back in Penobscot.' Penrose was as coldly callous as his unfeeling master. "'The evenest-tempered man in town, mad all the time.' Eventually Roger found a location which satisfied his requirements of raw materials, and made a landing upon that unfriendly soil. Sweeping beams denuded a great circle of life, and into that circle leaped robots. Robots requiring neither rest nor food, but only lubricants and power. Robots insensible alike to that bitter cold, and to that noxious atmosphere. But the outlaws were not to win a foothold upon that inimical planet easily, nor were they to hold it without effort. Through the weird vegetation of the circle's bare edge, there scuttled and poured along a horde of the metal-studded men, if men they may be called, who, ferocity incarnate, rushed the robot line. Mowed down by hundreds, still they came on, willing, it seemed, to expend any number of lives in order that one living creature might once touch a robot with one outthrust metallic stud. Whenever that happened there was a flash as of lightning, the heavy smoke of burning insulation, grease, and metal, and the robot went down out of control. Recalling his remaining automatons, Roger sent out a shielding screen, against which the defenders of their planet raged in impotent fury. For days they hurled themselves and their every force against that impenetrable barrier, then withdrew, temporarily stopped, but by no means acknowledging defeat. Then, while Roger and his cohorts directed affairs from within their comfortable and now sufficiently roomy vessel, there came into being around it an industrial city of metal, peopled by metallic and insensate mechanisms. Mines were sunk, furnaces were blown in, smelters belched forth into the already unbearable air their sulphurous fumes, rolling mills and machine shops were built and equipped, and as fast as new enterprises were completed, additional robots were ready to man them. In record time the heavy work of girders, members, and plates was well under way, and shortly thereafter light, deft, and multi-fingered mechanical men began the interminable task of building and installing the prodigious amount of precise machinery required for the vast structure. Roger was well content, but one day he was rudely awakened from his dream of complete isolation. Even though he had no reason to believe that there was anything dangerous within hundreds of millions of miles, it was Roger's cautious custom to release the screens from time to time, in order to allow his detectors to range out. This day, as he sent out his beams, his hard gray eyes grew even harder. "'Mirsky! Nishimura! Come here!' he snapped, and showed them upon his plate an enormous fear of steel, its rays flaming viciously. "'Is there any doubt whatever in your minds as to the system to which that ship belongs?' "'None at all. Triplanetarian,' replied the Russian. "'While larger than any I have seen before, its construction is unmistakable. They managed to trace us, and are testing out their weapons before attacking. Do we attack, or do we run away?' "'If Triplanetarian, and it surely is, 
We attack. Coldly. This one section is armed and powered to defeat Triplanetary's entire navy. We shall take that ship, and shall add its slight resources to our own. And it may even be that they have picked up the three who escaped me. I have never yet been balked for long. Yes, we shall take that vessel. And those three sooner or later. Bradley, I care nothing about. But Costigan handled me. And the woman. Diamond-hard eyes glared balefully at the urge of thoughts to a clean and normal mind, unthinkable. "'To your posts,' he ordered. "'The robots will continue to function under their automatic controls during the short time it will require to abate this nuisance.' "'One moment!' A strange voice roared from the speakers. "'Consider yourselves under arrest, by order of the Triplanetary Council. Surrender, and you shall receive impartial hearing.' Fight us, and you shall never come to trial. From what we have learned of Roger, we do not expect him to surrender. But if any of you other men wish to avoid immediate death, leave your vessel at once. We will come back for you later. Any of you wishing to leave this vessel have my full permission to do so, Roger announced, disdaining any reply to the challenge of the Boise. Any such, however, will not be allowed inside the planetoid area after the rest of us return from wiping out that patrol. We attack in one minute. "'Would not one do better by stopping on?' Baxter, in the quarters of the American, was in doubt as to the most profitable course to pursue. "'I should leave immediately if I thought that that ship could win. But I do not fancy that it can, do you?' "'That ship?' One triplanetary ship against us? Penrose laughed raucously. <laughs> Do as you please. I'd go in a minute if I thought that there was any chance of us losing. But there isn't, so I'm staying. I know which side my bread's buttered on. Those cops are bluffing, that's all. Not bluffing exactly, either, because they'll go through with it as long as they last. Foolish, but it's a way they have— They'll die trying every time, instead of running away, even when they know they're licked before they start. They don't use good judgment. "'None of you are leaving? Very well. You each know what to do,' came Roger's emotionless voice. The stipulated minute having elapsed, he advanced a lever, and the outlaw cruiser slid quietly into the air. Toward the poised Boise, Roger steered. Within range he flung out a weapon new-learned and supposedly irresistible to any ferrous thing or creature, the red converter field of the Nevians, for Roger's analytical detectors had stood him in good stead during those frightful minutes, and in the course of which the planetoid had borne the brunt of Narada's superhuman attack. In such good stead that from the records of those ingenious instruments he and his scientists had been able to reconstruct not only the generators of the attacking forces, but also the screens employed by the amphibians in the neutralization of similar beams. With a vastly inferior armament, the smallest of Roger's vessels had defeated the most powerful battleships of Triplanetary. What had he to fear in such a heavy craft as the one he now was driving, one so superlatively armed and powered? Well, it was for his peace of mind that he had no inkling that the harmless-looking sphere he was so blithely attacking was in reality the much-discussed, half-mythical, super-ship of Triplanetary's secret service, 
nor that its already unprecedented armament had been reinforced, thanks to that hated Costigan, with Roger's own every worthwhile idea, as well as with every weapon and defence known to that arch-Nevian, Narado. Unknowing and contemptuous, Roger launched his converter field, and instantly found himself fighting for his very life, for from Rautabush at the controls down, the men of the Secret Service countered with wave after wave, and with salvo after salvo of vibratory and material destruction. No thought of mercy for the men of the pirate ship could enter their minds. The outlaws had each been given a chance to surrender, and each had refused it. Refusing, they knew, as the Triplanetarians knew, and as all modern readers know, meant that they were staking their lives upon victory. For with modern armaments it is seldom indeed that a single man lives through the defeat in battle of a war-vessel of space. Roger launched his field of red opacity, but it did not even reach Boise's screens. All space seemed to explode into violet splendor as Rautabush neutralized it, drove it back with his obliterating zone of force, but even that all-devouring zone could not touch Roger's peculiarly efficient screen. The outlaw vessel stood out, unharmed. Ultraviolet, infrared, pure heat, infrasound, solid beams of high-tension, high-frequency current, in whose paths the most stubborn metals would be volatilized instantly. All iron-driven, every deadly and torturing vibration known, was hurled against that screen. But it, too, was iron-driven, and it held. Even the awful force of the macro-beam was dissipated by it, reflected, hurled away on all sides in coruscating torrents of blinding, dazzling energy. Cooper, Adlington, Spencer, and Dutton hurled against it their bombs and torpedoes, and still it held. But Roger's fiercest blasts and heaviest projectiles were equally impotent against the force shields of the super-ship. The adept, having no liking for a battle upon anything like equal terms, sought safety in flight, only to be brought to a crashing, stunning halt by a massive tractor-beam. That must be that six-phase polycyclic scream that Conway reported on, Cleveland frowned in thought. I've been doing a lot of work on that, and I think I've calculated an opener for it, Fred, but I'll have to have number ten projector and the whole output of number ten power room. Can you let me play with that much juice for a while? All right, Blake, tune her up to fifty-five thousand. There, hold it. Now, you other fellows, listen. I'm going to try to drill a hole through that screen with a hollow, quasi-solid beam, like a diamond drill cutting out a core. You won't be able to shove anything into the hole from outside the beam, so you'll have to steer your cans out through the central orifice of number ten projector. That'll be cold, since I'm going to use only the edge. I don't know how long I'll be able to hold the hole open, though, so shoot them along as fast as you can. Ready? Here goes. He pressed a series of contacts. Far below, in number ten converter room, massive switches drove home, and the enormous mass of the vessel quivered under the terrific reaction of the newly calculated semi-material beam of energy that was hurled out, backed by the mightiest of all the mighty converters and generators of Triplanetary's super-dreadnought. That beam, a pipe-like hollow cylinder of intolerable energy, flashed out, 
and there was a rending, tearing crash as it struck Roger's hitherto impenetrable wall. Struck and clung, grinding, boring in, while from the raging inferno that marked the circle of contact of cylinder and shield, the pirate screen radiated scintillating torrents of crackling, streaming sparks, lightning-like in length and in intensity. Deeper and deeper the gigantic drill was driven. It was through! pierced Roger's polycyclic screen, exposed the bare metal of Roger's walls, and now, concentrated upon one point, flamed out in seemingly redoubled fury Triplanetary's raging rays. In vain. For even as they could not penetrate the screen, neither could they penetrate the wall of Cleveland's drill, but rebounded from it in the cascaded brilliance of thwarted lightning. "'Oh, what a dumbbell I am!' groaned Cleveland. Why, oh, why didn't I have somebody rig up a secondary XX-7 beam on Ten's inner rings? Hop to it, will you, Blake, so that we'll have it in case they're able to stop the cans? But the pirates could not stop all of Triplanetary's projectiles, now hurrying along inside the pipe as fast as they could be driven. In fact, for a few minutes desperate Roger, knowing that he faced his long life's gravest crisis, paid no attention to them at all, nor to any of his own useless offensive weapons. He struggled only and madly to break away from the savage grip of the Boise's tractor-rod. Futile. He could neither cut nor stretch that inexorably anchoring beam. Then he devoted his every resource to the closing of that unbelievable breach in his shield, the barrier which through all previous emergencies had kept death at bay. Equally futile. His most desperate efforts resulted only in more frenzied displays of incandescence along the curved surface of contact of that penetrant cylinder. And through that terrific conduit came speeding package after package of destruction, bombs, and armor-piercing shells, gas shells, and shells of poisonous and corrosive fluids followed each other in close succession. The surviving scientists of the planetoid, expert gunners and raymen all, destroyed many of the projectiles, but it was not humanly possible to frustrate them all, and the breach could not be forced shut against the all but irresistible force of Cleveland's opener, and with all his power Roger could not shift his vessel's position in the grip of Triplanetary's tractors sufficiently to bring a projector to bear upon the super-ship along the now unprotected axis of that narrow but deadly tube. Thus it was that the end came soon. A warhead touched steel plating, and there ensued a world-racking explosion of atomic iron. Gaping wide, helpless, with all defences down, other torpedoes entered the stricken hulk, and completed its destruction even before they could be recalled. Explosive bombs literally tore the pirate vessel to fragments, while vials of pure corrosion dissolved her substance into dripping corruption and reeking gases filled every cranny of the wreckage as its torn and dismembered fragments began their long plunge to the ground. The spaceship followed the pieces down, and Raudabush sent out an exploring ray. Resistance was such that it was necessary to use corrosive, and ship and contents were completely disintegrated, he dictated into his vessel's log some time later. While there were, of course, no remains recognizable as human, it is practically certain that Roger and his last eleven men died. "'Look here, Fred,' 
Cleveland called his attention to the plate, upon which was pictured a horde of the peculiar inhabitants of the ghastly planet, wreaking their frenzied electrical wrath upon everything within the circle bared by Roger. I was just going to suggest that we clean up that planetoid Roger started, but I see that the local boys are attending to it. Just as well, perhaps. I would like to stay and study these people a little while, but we must get back on the trail of the Nevians. And the Boise leaped away into space, toward the line of flight of the amphibians. They reached that line, and along it they travelled at full normal blast. As they travelled, their detecting receivers and amplifiers were reaching out with their utmost power, ultra-instruments capable of rendering audible any signal originating within many light-years of them, upon any known frequency, and constantly at least two men were listening to those instruments with every sense concentrated in their ears. Listening, straining to distinguish in the deafening roar of background noise from the overdriven tubes any sign of voice or signal. Listening, while millions upon untold millions of miles beyond even the prodigious reach of those ultra-instruments, three human beings, pitted against overwhelming odds, were even then sending out into empty space an almost hopeless appeal for the aid so desperately needed. End of chapter